Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. prepared and obviously uninterested in any administrative duties, Tongzhe ascends the throne in 1872. Or, I'm sorry. Dear God, I got it mixed up. He married that year. He would ascend the throne the next year in 1873. With his ascension to the throne, So so An and So Shi retire. Quote, unquote. It's also the same year that Tongzhe orders the reconstruction of part of the Summer Palace to appease Se Shi. I think to also kind of distract her so she couldn't tell him how he should be carrying out his administrative duties. When she would do this, some people could argue that she was trying to keep her iron grip on power. I like to think that it may be more or less that... She had a lot of influence and made a lot of friends, and her ministers worried a lot that uh, under Tongzhe, nothing was going to get done, and he was going to ruin the country, so they kind of appealed to her to, you know, step in and please, for the love of fuck, save us. So. Okay, 1874. This is minor, but kind of important, especially given uh, Tongzhe and Soshi's relationship. Um, the princes Chun and, you know, Kun and Gong criticize Tongzhe for allowing the, allowing the reconstruction of the Summer Palace. They just lost two wars against multiple foreign powers. They lost ports. They didn't have the money to rebuild the palace. They needed to focus on other things like, you know, reestablishing a navy, um, other projects that Sashi had going on, one which included a railroad, which was kind of funny because the ministers fought very hard against it, and Sashi also was a little iffy on it. The Chinese believed that anything that shook the ground would sh- would wake the dead and cause vengeful spirits to rise and not only mess with them but everything else so that was put off put off for a long time um Tongzhe was not only not ill prepared to rule but couldn't take criticism at all so as a result he stripped both of them of their titles and their holdings and everything else and banished them from court which, I mean, that's a pretty embarrassing hissy fit to be throwing when you're supposed to be the son of heaven. Not uncommon, mind you, but embarrassing. Ministers came running to Se Shi to advocate on their behalf, on the behalf of uh, Princes Gong and uh, Kun, because obviously that was unfair. They were honestly speaking up as a concerned minister prince uncle should so both dowager empresses so an and so she came to court and reprimanded tongzhe for his actions and told him to reinstate the princes which he did reluctantly and he basically gave up on ruling from that point he figured that he was going to be undermined and his mother was always going to 
overrule him, so why bother anymore? Real sweet guy, right? Right. Okay. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed uh, the rule of uh, Emperor uh, Tongzhe because fuck was it short-lived. He died on January 13th, 1875. He only ruled for two years. It is believed by medical records and historical records that his death was caused after uh, contracting smallpox. Now, this is where the rumors come in. Given his uh, libido, it was argued for a few years that his death wasn't smallpox. It was actually syphilis, and it was covered up to make it look like smallpox in order to avoid a scandal. But given the onset of syphilis and stages and how rapid, how rapidly Tongzhe died, there's no evidence to support that he did die of syphilis, but we don't have any real way of knowing. Actually, there's going to be a lot of speculation as far as deaths go because there's no real way of telling, and it's been so long that we may not ever know. So, as far as historical records go, he died of smallpox. His wife, Empress Jia Shun, who I mentioned before uh, insulting Empress Sushi, saying that, you know, where she came in the front door, uh, Empress Sushi came in the side door, also joined him in death. She committed suicide, which in many cultures at the time was also seen as a very noble effort or action on behalf of the wife, you know. So... That clears up the emperor who died without an heir and also cleared the way for no other dowager empresses. It was still uh, So An and So Shi. But this posed a huge problem. The emperor died without an heir, not by Jia Shun, not by any of his other concubines. So how would they handle that? They handled it through adoption, but the rule was that the adopted son had to be a generation younger than the dowager empresses. And after some back and forth, they finally came to a decision. They selected Empress uh, Xi's nephew. His name was Zatian. This was the son of Prince Kun and his and so Xi's sister, Wang Zhen. See, I told you he was actually a brother-in-law. Uh, it took a while. It took a while for them to really come to a decision. They really argued over it. Um, this was difficult for Prince Kun, who, it said, had wept bitterly and kowtowed, or, you know, actually banged his head against the uh, uh, marble floors of the palace floor. And I've felt... Those floors, they're hard marble, and hardly a thing has changed since the palace was closed and then reopened. But, and I wouldn't say, you know, he like wildly whacked his head against the uh, floor or anything like that. Uh, the kowtow, you kind of like put your hands on the floor and like lightly tap your forehead against the space between your fingers. That was a way of bowing. He did this very vigorously, wept bitterly, and passed out. But I can understand why he was losing one of his sons. He would be able to see his son Satyan, but he would be moving into the Forbidden City. He would not be able to recognize Prince Kun as his father. He wouldn't be able to really see him anymore. This also put him in a very difficult spot politically. He was a member of the the Empress's cabinet, but... The selection of his son as emperor kind of put him at a conflict of interest. So from this point, Prince Kun would kind of keep quiet. I mean, he'd be given a more serious administrative role later in life, but for the next few years, he doesn't really do much. Honestly, a smart move uh, in comparison to what happened between him and Prince Prince Gong. Okay. In 1881, so she ends the study abroad program she started in the early 1860s. Um, she was nervous, it seemed, about the 
liberal Western ideas, or shall I say liberal in comparison to Chinese ideas at the time, and she was concerned that it might harbor some anti-monarchy sentiment, and she began to close down the program. Uh, I wouldn't say that was a good move, but seeing how quickly or how easily a coup could be staged and how precarious one's position is in a monarchy, I can't... I, I can see why she would. In this year also, unfortunately, Dowager Empress An dies of unknown causes. It's speculated that she died of a seizure, probably from some prescribed ancient Chinese medicine. We're not too sure what, but... We are also aren't sure exactly how she died. Now, this is where some more speculation comes in, where a lot of historical documents have accused Se Shi of trying to get rid of rivals. Obviously, people have accused Se Shi of trying to get rid of Empress Se An and others around her. But as I've mentioned before, there was no hint of rivalry or one that strong that would ever drive Se Shi to kill her. They had to work together. They were obviously close. I mean, they were, you know, one rank above the other for how many years? So I honestly don't believe that she would actually stoop that low. That and she honestly wouldn't have gained anything by killing Empress Sa'an. Sa'an didn't like going to the audiences. She didn't like attending court. So honestly, she was okay with most of the decisions being left up to Se and whatever minister or... At times, both Sushi and the Emperor. It didn't matter to her, so really, it's not like Sushi would have been gaining any more power by getting rid of her. So, I personally don't believe that she would have done that. Okay, 1885, the Sino-French War ends... Or Did I skip something? Yes, I did. I skipped, a, I skipped a spot entirely. Let me back up, sorry. 1883, China enters the Sino-French War with both Prince Prince Gong and so she supports in favor of Korea. And I can understand why. Um, obviously, with the Opium Wars, China was not too pleased with foreign powers coming in and threatening their sovereignty and their authority. So anything... Any threat on a country that is partially under their protection, which parts of Korea were... Not going to jive well with them. And, you know. I always feel bad for China. I really do. Because, my goodness, this this stretch of time, they just could not win. Because, as I've just spoiled, they lose the war two years later. Now, this is where it kind of gets a little messy as far as Sushi and Prince Gong go. Prince Gong was assertive at one point when he was younger, but Se Shi obviously had a very... She was very stubborn. Not to the point where she wouldn't listen to her ministers at any point. Don't get me wrong, there were points where she wouldn't listen to the advice of her ministers, but he'd eventually been worn down by this, by the death of his brother, by how many other changes, by just her strong will. And so... He didn't say much when Sushi gave her support to enter the Sino-French War in order to protect Korea and themselves. When they lost the war, she saw this as a perfect pretext to finally demote him as she saw fit. Now this, I think, was partially revenge. There was a death back in 1869 that I didn't mention. I didn't mention it at the time because it wasn't really important to note, not until now. There was a eunuch named An De Hai, who was Se Shi's confidant and her favorite. She had sent him out during... Um, in 1869 in order to prepare for her son's wedding. There was a specific rule or a capital crime that eunuchs were not allowed to leave the Forbidden City without authorization. This kind of prevented them from gaining troops and staging a coup or just them roaming free. 
Now the hairy part is that he had he was he left on orders under Sushi, but for some reason that didn't really register. He was arrested, the entourage was arrested, and he was executed in 1869. Now, the weird thing is that word had reached the Forbidden City, but at the time so she was witness was watching a an opera which she was an ardent fan, so she didn't want to be interrupted. So it's said that the order to carry out the execution came from Prince Gong, who was just making sure that so she wouldn't be interrupted. But Ande Hai was her favorite, and he was executed under Prince Gong's authority. And so that put a relation uh, that put a serious strain on their relationship, and. I think that after the huge loss with the Sino-French War and Ande Hai's death in 1869, that was the perfect time to finally get rid of him. So he was removed from his posts, and he was demoted, and he would never gain regain prominence again. Obviously, you don't mess with her, you know? Okay. 1880... 1885. Okay, still on there. Okay. In addition to all of this, uh, Prince Kun replaces Prince Gong as the president of the Imperial Navy. Now, this is important because this year, or, you know, 1885, this was when money was taken away from the Navy to rebuild the Summer Palace. That's where the money came from, and we're kind, or at least I'm kind of assuming that Prince Kun allowed this so he could stay on Sushi's good side and make sure that his son, Zaitan, would be safe too. And obviously, Sushi didn't say anything one way or the other about the money being appropriated to rebuild the Summer Palace. 1887. Okay, so the title, uh, Zaitan's name is changed from Zaitan to Emperor Guangzhou, which was given to him after his adoption. That was, yeah, okay. This year, he begins to rule under Sushi's supervision. Supervision. So he begins to make decisions on his own and hold audiences, and Sushi just kind of keeps an eye on him from behind the curtain. You know, he is mostly handling this while she's just a presence in the background. <coughs> Two years later, in 1889, Emperor Guangzhou marries and ascends the throne. And with his ascension on March 5th of 1889, Sushi retires for a second time. Okay, so a few years go by, and again, not much happens until 1894 with the... Wait. Ah. Uh, 1894, when the Boxer Rebellion begins. Um, so she is in retirement, but the ministers are worried about Emperor Guangzhou. Because... Or Guangzhou. Guangxu. Guangxu, sorry. Guangxu was being influenced by a lot of reformists that I'll mention later, and a few who obviously uh, have bigger names later in history, but um, a lot of them are starting to approach him about how Sushi's so really trying to take over everything from him, and wouldn't this wonderful socialist idea be wonderful? Wouldn't the emperor be great for that? These reformists were kind of trying to push modernization forward in China, while I think also being opportunists. It wouldn't surprise me. Especially with uh, one, what was his name? Uh, Kang Youwei, which we'll meet later, but um, it was speculated at one time that uh, Kang was somehow tricked into bringing up the idea to Emperor Guangzhou, or Guangxu to give former Japanese Prime Minister Ito Hirobumi a minister position. However, that would prevent that would present a conflict of interest because he was Prime Minister of Japan and that would obviously give Japan not only extra intelligence on Chinese government, but also an in, making it very easy for a coup to be, you know, to take place. This idea was suggested by a British missionary, Timothy Richard, who was just a missionary. He didn't really have any official position that I know of. 
no other foreign power knew about it, not even the British. And it's not sh- not very clear if Ito Hirobumi knew about this plan either. So this this plan's all kind of in the gray, but still it doesn't look good. But we'll come back to that later. So so she's approached for you know more arbitrary decision making behind the emperor's back. Uh, this gets to a point where the ministers are giving her secret court documents to look over and leave instructions on. Um, this goes on for a few years until it's really not needed anymore after um, after Sushi takes over again. Let's see. Okay. Four years later, 1898. Um, this is where Kang Yulwei comes in. Um, under his influence, uh, the emperor Emperor Kuangzhou starts the Hundred Days Reform, which was a gigantic disaster. It was an attempt to fast forward modernization, or you know, fast track it in China, making it a lot more like Russia, or at least you know, Japan, where. They were starting to get more industry. They were starting to wear more Western clothing. Uh, they were starting to drop their traditional ideals and focus more on Western manufacturing and products. It did not go over well at all. Um, the ministers and so she saw this as a threat to their rule, which honestly kind of makes sense and would make would. Definitely explain the revolutions, especially in 1917 or so, um, or 1912. I take that back, 1912. But anyway, feeling so threatened by these reforms, so she officially took over again and put a stop to the reforms and had a well-known general put Emperor Kuangzhou under house arrest. Okay. Just make sure. There we go. Okay, yep. So, Guangzhou was put on house arrest in the Forbidden City on September 21st, 1898. So, she issued an edict calling Guangzhou, quote, unfit to rule and he was disgraced. And that officially marked the end of his rule. Uh, Guangzhou would attend court with So, she. Of course, but again, it was a lot like it was when he was a child. It was more symbolic where the ministers would address so she from behind the curtain and she would make the decisions. He did nothing. Okay, two years later, 1900. Don't know. Okay, my notes are all confused. Anyway, um, Boxer Rebellion's continuing, and on June 21st, 1900, Sushi issues an edict declaring war on all foreign powers. That same year, Sushi and the court flee Beijing again during the Battle of Beijing. This was on August 15th of that year. The next year, the Boxer Rebellion ends in September after the signing of the Boxer Protocol. Basically, telling the Chinese to calm the fuck down and sorry, but you can't just start killing Western citizens, merchants, missionaries, what have you, just because you want us gone. I mean, don't get me wrong, we, you should have kicked our asses out, and honestly, we would have deserved it. We certainly still do. We're sorry, but, you know, I'm sorry, but weapons, all that kind of stuff, still not justified, but still... I get it. I get it. Really. I get it. Alright. 1902. The Sushi and the court return to Beijing, riding on a 21-car train and at the station at Qingchentengfu, I think, to Beijing Railway Station. So, it took a few years and a lot of convincing, but they got their railway system. This was the first time that the court rode on a rail, you know, on a in a in a train and they also permitted the citizens, you know, the commoners to witness the court returning. They were very strange about that too. Um if the emperor was returning to the forbidden city or if a procession of 
concubines or if a bridal procession was entering the Forbidden City, it was only done at night. It was only done at night because commoners were not allowed to watch the procession. So in order to avoid crowds or any leering eyes, they told people along the route to stay in their houses, do not look outside at any time, and don't come out to meet the procession. Just stay inside. And they would just do so at night. This way, no one would gawk. I don't really know why. They considered themselves very holy, very saintly, you know... The Emperor was the Son of Heaven, so, you know, you can't look directly upon the Son of Heaven. So do it at night. Uh, I don't know. Strange. Okay. Let me see. Alright, uh, this year, um... So she starts up again a... The program similar to the Study Abroad program, except she sends her ministers to foreign countries to start fact-finding, you know, their sciences, their mathematics, their methods of creating ships and whatnot. Um, this is the first time since the first program in the 1860s. Okay. 1903. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. She begins to test the waters with being friendly with uh, foreign powers and in an attempt to show good faith towards the foreign diplomats. So she uh, invites the wives of the foreign ministers to tea at the Summer Palace. This isn't the first time she'd do it, but this... This wasn't the last time she'd do it, but it was the first time, and obviously it was uncomfortable, but she handled it well, and obviously a lot of the ladies were very receptive. One being an, um, I believe an American, um, let's see, yep. She agrees to have American artist Catherine Carl on suggestion from the wife of the American uh, American diplomat to come to Beijing and do her painting. And I've seen the painting, and she's done wonderful work. There's even a sketch by her, by Catherine Carl, that I thought was lovely. It was charcoal. You know, very well done. Holds up excruciatingly well. I mean, she was very talented. These two would become friends eventually. Uh, Catherine Carl wouldn't become a very close confidant, but definitely a woman that could speak on Sushi's character. And she certainly spoke of her as a nice compassionate woman, not a monster as some of these mythical documents make her out to be. And honestly, I would agree with that. She was... We are all human, even if we are royal or not. And obviously, so she was only doing what she had to to survive. And if she could avoid it, she wouldn't kill anyone. But, you know, sometimes you gotta get rid of a bastard who uh, you've just staged a coup against. I I, I wouldn't doubt that either. I, I wouldn't argue with it. Okay, this same year, uh, Sushi and the court are the very first in Chinese history to have their photographs taken. Um, those photos are adorable, too, because a lot of them are staged. Some of them show her and some of the eunuchs in, like, a, a mythical uh, setting, you know, representing gods or whatnot. But there's one that I love. It was taken from a second story on the outside, maybe from a balcony, and... So she and a few eunuchs and a few members of her court are standing outside around the eaves of the the shelter they're under. And they're all looking up, and you can kind of see a smile on Sushi's face, and she's waving a handkerchief 
trying to point out, hi, I'm here. There are not, there aren't any documents or paintings or drawings. Well, there are drawings of her smiling, but I mean, those are some scary looking drawings. No offense to traditional Chinese artists, but I'm so sorry. That's 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 awful scary looking. But there's no modern or Western drawing of her smiling. And that photo right there not only has the closest thing to it, but it really shows her human side, and I like that. I mean, you can be as untouchable as you'd like to think, but a good number of us do have humanity in us, and it's nice to see that, even when you are trying to show your might to the world. <sighs> now we get to the sad part. 1908. Emperor Guangzhou dies on November 14th, 1908, from what we now find out, or 10 years ago found out, from acute arsenic poisoning. Uh, according to DNA testing on his remains, there, were, there was over 2,000 times the amount of arsenic in his system that would have killed a human being. But the problem is that we don't know who did it or how it was done. And before you start pointing the finger at Sushi, hold on a second because she died only a few hours later on a, on November 15th. From what I am speculating is renal failure. She had she exhibited some symptoms of renal failure earlier in life, so honestly this wasn't too much of a surprise, but there isn't really any official document saying one way or other what she died of. So, just given the symptoms and whatnot, that's what it sounds like to me. And since she died only a few hours apart from him, I very highly doubt she would have been responsible for his death. But I can understand why also that argument would have been made. Um, like I mentioned before, uh, Emperor Guangzhou was in w was close with some reformists like Kang Youwei, and believe it or not, Yuan Shikai. And that name should sound familiar if you know know a little bit about Chinese history between the end of the dynasties and the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. He was in charge of the nationalist uh, the nationalist part of Chinese history. So yeah. I can see why they would think or, you know, why people would assume that because, you know, they were reformists and obviously, you know, the 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 the, the monarchy's the, the dynasty's bad and you know, look at Empress Empress she she put her son her adopted son under house arrest and she's just terrible. She's just trying to keep an iron grip. How can you you know, she she'd obviously do that. But I don't think that she would. I think that the reformists might have had a lot more to gain from that. But again, that's just speculation, and obviously there isn't any clear evidence to support it one way or other. So honestly, we I don't know if we'll know in this lifetime who did it, who poisoned Guangzhou, or exactly how Se Xi or Se An died. Now... This was all kind of concurrent and a bit of a clusterfuck, but just moving on time timeline-wise, a new emperor takes to the throne two days after Sushi's death. Pu Yi, or, well, his name would be Emperor Zhuan Tong, or, has, or as we in the Western world know him best, Pu Yi. He ascends the throne at the age of two, he is not Emperor Kuangzhu's son because, much like his predecessor, he died without an heir. So, so she had to think and think fast, and so she went with Prince Kun's grandson, Pu Yi. And he obviously was, you know, swiped in the middle of the night. Not kidnapped, but they... the. They had to work fast. Guangzhou was dying, so was she. So they came, got him, and two days after her death, he became emperor. I believe one of the youngest in Chinese history, if not the entire 
history of the Qin Dynasty. So, now we go a tiny bit beyond that just because the end of this timeline, the end of the Qin Dynasty, was actually very interesting and tumultuous at best. Puyi, or I'm sorry, Xuan, Xuan, Xuan Tong would rule from his ascension in 1908 until his very, very heavily suggested abdication in 1912. I say very, very, very heavily suggested abdication because politics back then were obviously different in the East than they are the West, where a very violent show of force would be enough to get change to happen and not have it questioned, or, you know, a very long and hard-fought battle, or just a law that gets turned over or anything like that. That's not how it was done because it was obviously implied that the Qin Dynasty was not going to survive. They did not have the manpower to fight off another angry army and the powers that be, which were at this time the nationalists, they decided to just work with Sushi. Well, not Sushi. They just decided to appeal to the monarchy and just ask or suggest that now is a good time to get out. Now is a good time to give up. You are not going to survive this. And at the time, Puyi was working or ruling under the supervision of then Dowager Empress Zhuo Ling. Let me make sure I got her name right. There we go. No, I didn't have the name right. I'm sorry. He was ruling under the guidance of Dowager Empress Longyu. And when she was approached about the abdication and the fight, the impossible to win fight against the nationalists, they abdicated. Or at least, he abdicated. History likes to record Puyi as the last reigning emperor in China. And I would agree with that. However, Sun Yat-sen, who would be president of the national, you know, the nationalist government for a few years, decided to get a little loopy and declared himself king after a few years. You know, abdication in 1912, and I think in 1917, he kind of flipped his lid and like, yep, I'm king. What are you going to do, bitches? But, you know, power makes people go insane sometimes. I mean, look at our president and tell me that I'm not lying. But anyway... So, yes, um, the Qin Dynasty officially came to an end in 1917. There was a brief attempt at restoration for the Qin Dynasty, but it didn't go well, so Puyi had to abdicate twice, technically. Um, he didn't take it very well, but I can understand why. He'd lived in the Forbidden City from the age of two up until his abdication abdication when he was a young man so everyone told him he was the son of heaven he knew no other way so there was no really easy way to cope and obviously he felt that his birthright was taken from him i mean if you really want to call it that but you know um he would kind of be listless between 1917 up until the early 1930s this is when Japan comes in, because obviously the 1930s, World War II, Germany and Italy are getting into shit, and Japan's starting to start shit, so the after the Mukuden incident in 1932, which was just an excuse for Japan to invade parts of China, they set up the puppet government Manchukuo in Manchuria. And Japan, noticing a very angry, listless emperor, would be the perfect figurehead for their government. And I'm actually serious. This is what happened, if you weren't aware. They do get in contact with him, and he agrees, and he becomes ruler of Manchukuo. Um, which is interesting, because I mentioned Zhongcheng 
before who wrote the biography that I read about Se Xi. Wild Swans is about the lives of her grandmother, her mother, and herself. And her grandmother had lived, I take that back, I believe her great-grandmother, her grandmother, and her mother. No, 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 I had it right the first time. Grandmother, mother, and herself. Her grandmother and her mother lived in Manchuria, or Manchukuo, during that time period, and her mother had been given the honor of giving flowers to Emperor, you know, to Puyi and his, or at least his principal wife, during an event. So it's very interesting to read about that kind of stuff, and only realize that that was about a hundred years ago only, although it feels like it was much long, much, 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 much longer ago than that. Puyi would rule over, or shall I say, quote-unquote, rule over Manchukuo until Japanese surrender during 1945. That's when Manchukuo is dissolved entirely and the lands return to Manchuria. He then kind of goes on the run for a while and is eventually caught by... He's eventually caught by uh, Russian forces and extradited to... China to answer for his war crimes and would spend some time in prison. Um, he would be released after good behavior. Now, this was before the serious cultural revolution in the 1960s where landlords, rich people, anyone that wasn't actively conforming to the to Chairman Mao's or at least a gang of fours ideal of, you know, the communist citizen, you were beaten, placed in jail, you were given thought control, you know, thought, uh, thought control and whatnot. Um, so it was a little more peaceful then, especially towards him, especially, especially since he became far more humble. And he kind of had to back then. He would lose his wives. One, I believe, one asked for a divorce, and I think the other one, unfortunately, may have... No, no, I, I have no idea what happened to his principal wife, but I know it wasn't pretty. He would eventually meet another woman, fall in love, and marry her, but I believe their union was short-lived. Um, He passed away of... It was a form of cancer. I just not. I I'm not too sure if it was pancreatic or not, but he did die of cancer in 1966, right as the Cultural Revolution was about to begin. So I consider that lucky, especially since he was the last Qin. You know, he was the last Qin emperor. That would not have been pretty for him at all. Okay, now some interesting facts. Dowager Empress, Empress Su'an's birth name was not recorded or is just not known by modern history. So the only or the earliest name I have is Empress Zhen. Prince Gong served on the Ground Council, which was in charge of the Chinese military forces. Yes, all military forces from 1854 until his final demotion by Su'an in 1885. So about 30 years, 31 years. That's a pretty good tenure. Okay, we already talked about Ande High. Okay, we already talked about Tong Zhe's death. Um, so she had a nickname that was given to her by some of the members of court. Old Buddha. She was very pious by nature and tried her best to be gentle. I mean, to be a supreme l ruler of China, you had to be tough in some areas, like uh, the execution of some of the Board of Regents, or, you know, some people that had honestly done wrong. But otherwise, she really did try her hardest not to be too callous or too mean, but only show authority when she had to. And this one, just because I'd been there, and it just makes me happy. The Summer Palace, as we know it now, was enlarged, and some structures restored for Soshi's 60th birthday in 1895. Uh, two dams were built, splitting the lake that the Summer Palace is located around, and it's a man-made lake, so, I mean, 
there's no easy way for me to describe it. So I definitely encourage you to look it up on Google Images. There are just lovely pictures, and I'm afraid that a lot of my resource, or you know, my source material for the Summer Palace has been lost to time, uh, MySpace and Facebook accounts that I don't even have access to anymore. But I might be able to get back. Um, anyway, um, two dams were built then, splitting Kunmin Lake in two. Uh, the building's in front of Longevity Hill, which is the centerpiece of the Summer Palace grounds. They were also restored. Um, the Summer Palace was also given its current name in Chinese. Ye He Yuan. I'm not too sure what that means. Actually, I don't know what that means, but that was the year that it was changed. This was what the funds that was meant for the Chinese Navy were siphoned off for. But it made Sushi happy, so I guess it works for something. And the grounds are still wonderful today. Oh, goodness. Okay, so. Like I said before, I'd like to open this up to listener suggestion. Um, so if you have any ideas for any future segments of... I learned something. You can leave us ideas on our Facebook page, uh, Four Trans Men Podcast, or you can send us an email at Four Trans Men Podcast at Gmail dot com. Um, let's you know. I mean, let's try to keep you know the the suggestions you know good for now. Like you know, actual historical ones. Um, I'm not going to accept any disgusting ones like with any kinks or anything like that. Sorry. I mean, I don't kink shame, but this ain't no kinky show, so, you know, not really a good thing to delve into. That, and I'll be honest, I don't kink shame, but I'm uncomfortable researching some of that stuff, so, you know, respect the choice. Um, our show is part of the Trans Podcaster Visibility Initiative. Um, you can find us on Facebook and find out more about what that's like. Um, our themes are the, yeah, the... <laughs> Beginning, the intro and outro theme uh, is by Nate Swanger. And yes, we do have his permission to use it. Thank you again, sir. Um, you can send us hate mail or love mail or fan mail at our email, 4transmenpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can go on to Patreon and give us a donation, or you can just give us a star review. Um, that would be at patreon.com slash 4transmen. Uh, yeah, that's about it. All right, until next time. with my hands I raised it up to where it stands With my brow I paid my debt I drew it out of my sweat I built that house with my hands I built my life with my hands From the ground up 
Dakota films And I was braced for life and nothing else So I dug in deep with my heels I learned to read and write real well And then I went to school But college couldn't teach worth hell my old man's love for tools I built that house with my hands I raised it up to where it stands And with my brow I paid my debt I drew it out of my sweat I built that house with my hands Build my life with my hands I helped my dad build barns and homes I Stood against the wind No matter how hard it would blow Those walls would not give in They kept our family safe and warm Never went tonight Chimney smoke just teased the storms Though they blow with all their might I built that house with my hands I raised it up to where it stands And with my brow I paid my debt it out of my sweat I built that house with my hands I built my life with my hands If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.